Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, my name is Christian, and welcome back to Throughline the podcast where we try to find the concept in non-concept albums. We've slingshotted back to the streaming era here, or actually probably near the beginning of the streaming era, mid-digital era. Do you know that the iPhone's only been around since 2007? Yeah, I know that's 15 years ago, but also the iPhone's only been around for 15 years? That's insane! Society has been absolutely zipping along because it's felt like we've had the iPhone for eons. And this album is only two years younger. But this one really surprised me with that piece of information. It is, after all, Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix by Phoenix. From a mess to the Two thousand and nine. This album came out in two thousand and nine. I could have sworn this came out in like the last six years. But let's talk about some of its statistics then, huh? Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix is their fourth studio album and was the album that launched them into the public eye. Well, kind of. Personally, I thought they were way more popular than they were, apparently. As a brief experiment at work led me to find out that not many people remember this band or even its hits. But maybe my sample pool was weird, because this album sold at least a million copies worldwide, certified gold in the US, Australia, and Canada, and their two most popular hits from the album have almost a half a billion streams on Spotify alone. It wasn't a chart-topping success by any means, but it did reach second on the US Independent Billboard chart, and also casually won the Grammy that year for Best Alternative Music Album. You know, no biggie. (laughs) I mean, with a combined Metacritic of 82 out of 100, All of this compiles into, honestly not record-breaking numbers, but this album alone doubled the total sales of all three of their previous albums combined, so it was a huge deal for them. For those of you who don't know who Phoenix is, well, they're a bit hard to pin down. And also, maybe not. It really could just be categorized down to indie pop, but this does a bit of a disservice to the band, especially during the time they came out. Bands have always done well for themselves genre-bending, pulling influence from one alternate style or another to give their sound texture. Most rock bands weren't just rock bands. They incorporated pop, jazz, even reggae and ska into their mix to form a more unique identity. But today, despite the insistence of everything sounding the same, it more has to do with a larger push toward more holistic genre-blending. Part of this has to do with the expanded library of genres available, or at least defined to musicians, but it also represents a goal to find a niche that no one else has explored, especially considering the oversaturation of the market. As such, Phoenix is indie pop, but they're a mashup of indie rock, new wave, synth pop, pop rock, even elements of electro pop, and other things. Bands are becoming harder and harder to pin down, and that's actually probably for the best. In an age of stagnation, it's good to know there are at least attempts to explore. Back to some stats about the band. Not only are they indie pop, but they're also French. That's right, we've had no Americans yet. 
They first formed in 1997, a full 12 years before becoming anywhere close to mainstream, consisting of lead singer Thomas Mars, bassist Deck D'Arcy, and guitarist brothers Laurent Brankowitz and Christian Mazalai. Yeah, you heard that right. This is the future, and we don't have a drummer. The band has made six studio albums, selling a grand total of about probably two million records worldwide. These modern musicians are hard to find numbers for, but they do have over 4 million monthly listeners on Spotify, which is a statistic that technically means 4 million unique people listen to something of theirs a month. Tour numbers are also kind of impossible to determine, but my guess is something like six tours and over 600 shows worldwide. Don't quote me on these numbers, but it's the best I could find. Honestly, the further we go covering more and more obscure albums, which is something I absolutely want to do, the fewer and fewer stats you'll get, so bear with me. And for those of you who don't know what indie itself means, yeah, that's fair. It really is just kind of meant to be a term for a band that doesn't have a major label, being independent. But it's kind of lost that specificity over the years, and more commonly been used as nomenclature to describe a band that is relatively non-mainstream or has a sound that deviates from the most popular music of the time. A lot of relatively popular bands are still regarded as indie, despite being on arguably major labels. To be fair to Phoenix, however, Glassnote and V2, at least at the time, were relatively small, and Glassnote is still regarded as indie today. But enough about numbers and genres and how hard it is to find information on anything these days, despite the wealth of information contained in the world supposed to be at our fingertips. Let's just get into the breakdown part of the episode with this week's album, Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix. If you were around and plugged into the cultural zeitgeist in any musical capacity around 2009 to like 2012, you might have recognized this riff, a punchy, mysterious electro-pop driving force that came to help define a specific style of indie pop that ran rampant in the early 2010s. Along with their unique lyricist, dense but singable lyrics, and strange album name and artwork, Phoenix broke into the limelight for a brief time with this record. But despite that, no lie, the first time I really started sinking my teeth into this band came when I was playing a baseball video game from around 2012 and heard this song, 1901, over and over and over again. It was different and weird and fun and led me down to the road to checking out this album six years later. Yeah, I only really seriously started listening to this album probably about nine years after it was released. And wouldn't you know it, my lack of enthusiasm in finding out more extended even further to the point that I'm able to cover it here because I, uncharacteristically, never looked up the lyrics, never looked up the band or any of its other albums, and never really sought to find answers until about two weeks ago when I chose this album for the podcast. And again, wouldn't you know it, it really shouldn't have been that mysterious to me. It is, after all, just another relationship album. That's two out of four so far. But to be fair, relationships are one of the most complicated but equally universally relatable experiences we have as humans. So the idea that at least half, if not the majority of albums, are relationship ones is not that far-fetched a thing to believe. So maybe it's not just a relationship album. If relationships are so complicated and faceted, then so must be the albums that cover them. Everything is informed by some fragment of truth. Each story told by an artist has some connection to them, whether they know it or not, meaning that everything that anyone makes is unique to themselves as an individual, as a complex person with separate thoughts and ideas. Maybe it's appropriate then, at this point, to start the episode the same way we always do, and attempt to look at the brief overarching meanings or ideas presented on the surface in each song to see if we notice a pattern starting to form. We start, of course, with Listomania. Yes, Listomania. We'll talk about the name a little later and break down the song from that point, but as a brief summary, this song is about the unfurling of passionate, obsessive love and the warning signs for later, a blurring of the past and present. 1901 talks extensively about the past and present, flipping back and forth between a semi-confident plea for continuing together and hints toward a falling out, or even so, actual signs of a falling out. 
And rather than continue down this road, we're already starting to see the pattern. We're at a point in this relationship where the cracks are beginning to show. The seams in their history that were carefully sewn to prevent past problems from spilling into the present and future have started to become undone. Walls have been starting to go up. Protections against other slights, as we can hear in the Fences lyrics, fences in a row, wired and protected. And the relationship starts to unwind. And we hear the first true line of this breakdown in the comparatively tiny part two of Love Like a Sunset. Visible horizon, right where it starts and ends. When did we start the end? Obviously, the relationship is in its final days, but not ended yet. But more importantly, we also get the continuation of the past-present melding. As someone who is your average member of society and has been for 25 years, I've had my fair share of relationships end. And from my experience, which is no way universal, but might be relatable at least a little bit, when your thoughts have finally settled on the idea that you may need to break up, your mind then starts replaying moments of joy and positivity from before, actively and defiantly making you question your decision based on the fact that there were some good things. As such, you're caught between past and present in a way that will ultimately decide your future, as things are wont to do, and we see this reflected as a running theme throughout the album. In fact, Listomania, 1901, Love Like a Sunset, Rome, Countdown, and to a lesser degree Lasso and Girlfriend all involve this blending of time, with references to the past or things from the past mixed in with conversations about the present. That's almost 80% of the album if you remove the instrumental track Love Like a Sunset Part 1. Listen to the third verse of Rome as the lead singer creates this Roman metaphor and continues to pull it through this moment of vulnerability. Always and forevermore I call to say I'm on the way Two thousand years remain in a trash can that burned the cigarette somewhere I should still have fall, fall, fall. 2,000 years remain in a trash can. Rome is actually a really good example of this idea in its entirety, as the premise of the song compares a strong relationship to the strength of the Roman Empire, and the relationships fall equally to that of the fall of Rome. In the lyric we just mentioned, he's short-circuiting the metaphor, taking the full breadth of their relationship, the 2,000-year empire or however long they were together, and saying, it's done. It's in the trash. All of their history, just like that of the power of Rome, just made into history. Now, a quick history note, the Roman Empire was more like 1500 years, but the song here is more pulling back from the beginning of the empire to the present, which is more in line with the 2000-year label, and also again shows this melding and mixing of the past and present. Now, we're missing another key fragment of the album here. Beyond the relationship's ups and downs, or the reason it ended one way or another, we haven't yet determined the feelings of the two main characters toward the relationship, or the fact that it's ending. From the beginning of the album, we're given the impression that the main character is much more willing to see the relationship continue than his partner. The protagonist is constantly taking jabs at her, saying things like, I know you would still rather mess with me than get going, pointing at her general sense of not necessarily wanting to continue being together, but continuing as if a charade or leading him on. This is most easily seen in Lasso, where the lead singer likens his partner's feelings toward being in the relationship as being tied down. There are many references in the song to being lost and unsure in this commitment to be together forever, even pointedly saying that she is wasting her life in this indecision. But listen to the chorus here and notice the protagonist's pleas. Where would you go, tied up to a lasso? Could you go and run into me? She feels trapped, and we get what appears to be a vulnerable moment, an attempt to get her to recognize him and be with him rather than feeling the way she does. 
But there's another idea at play here that we briefly touched on in the way that the protagonist is treating her. Despite his insistence on their compatibility and his desire to continue to be together, we've been hearing for the entire album his complaints with her and his borderline insults. This starts to complicate this dynamic, and with the references to her cheating on him, or at least the appearance of that, in Rome, we start to sense the anger present in the lyrics. The protagonist not once, but twice, refers to the fact that she's wasted the time that they had together by dismantling the relationship in both Lasso and the final song Armistice. He consistently uses language designed to appear as though he's the one fighting for the relationship, and she's just giving up. In Girlfriend, the penultimate song, he even says this. I am longing you. I'm longing us too. Who bought a miracle sells these fortune tears. December's death or glory, how you want it. This last line is basically saying it's your decision whether or not you want this to go well or poorly. Essentially, it's up to you if you want to end this. In a sense, even though she may or may not have detonated the relationship by cheating or whatever and subsequently began driving the push toward its end, he is not making it any easier, adding his own side to this emotional shredding. And if we go even further into unwinding her opinion on the entire endeavor, we see a few signs of tarnished hope on her side. She wanted this to be an everlasting love, something that would last the rest of her days, with tons of references to this desire, a desire that's sickly hopeless, according to the protagonist, to be permanent. One of the most revealing refrains of this idea exists in the song Countdown, a bright, almost church rock-like resonator in the back half of the album that includes a repeating, yet almost morphing line. Take a quick listen to the three uses of this lyric. True and everlasting, that's what you want. Cruel and everlasting, that's what you want. True and everlasting, didn't last that long. Again, we hear the protagonist's sour notes here, distorting her actual desires into a criticism on the relationship as a whole, then to a yeah right sentiment, and the fact that it didn't seem to be everlasting after all. But that doesn't diminish the fact that the lead singer actively knows that she wanted something forever, and continually brings this up in order to add salt to both of their wounds. So we're getting a definite sense of mutual destruction here, and we can see this reflected in the cover of the album. And we can also see some further evidence of what we've been discussing so far as well. There is a cartoonish lightness to the artwork, which depicts three large antiquated bombs across a torn pink canvas. The three bomb colors are black, red, and blue, with the black on top behind the multi-fonted album logo, the red in the middle, and the blue on bottom in the corner. There are two different ways to read these colors, but first and foremost, the pink canvas in the background kind of implies an illusion of comfort and safety referenced in the ways the two tiptoe around each other in the final days, that uncomfortable area of unpleasant niceties brimming with hints of war and finality behind. This is the air of their armistice, the end of the album, where they set the terms of their current relationship or sign it away. We'll talk about that in a minute, but for now, it's important to note that the calm facade is fully illusory, because at this point, the bombs have already started to drop. Back to the two ways to read the colors, red and blue are very commonly used to separate two different teams. Red versus blue, him versus her, with the looming of some bigger end above in the black. However, if we dip into traditional gendered imagery for a minute and kind of bend the colors a touch, we can also push them into pink and blue. Again, and more intimately pitting one side of the relationship with another, Yet there's something even more interesting at play. If we consider the lead singer to be the protagonist, i.e. the male or blue bomb, we notice that he has attributed his size as the smallest of the three bombs. 
If he's telling the story, he's painting himself as the least to blame, with her being the pink in the middle and subsequently the black spot on their relationship, the cheating eventer likewise, as the biggest and most glaring issue. Yet, in a moment of obliviousness, he has also placed himself in the position closest to the ground. He is the one driving the first blows, the one who threw the first stone, and the one set to cause the most destruction, being the one that demolishes first. As such, we're getting another complication of fault, a nod to the idea that everyone in this party sucks, that the relationship is doomed, and they are both nearly equally to blame. But then, how do we take the album's name into consideration here? Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix is, frankly, an extremely bizarre title. One that more aligns with a funny in-joke shared by the band than an attempt to add meaning to the lyrics and music contained within. However, I'd urge caution on attributing randomness to decisions, and even if randomness is the ultimate goal, to equally dismiss that as having no value. So let's break the name down into its parts. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, baptized name Johannes Chrysostomus Wolfgangus Theophilus Mozart, which I had to read because it's just the coolest name I've ever seen, was a classical composer in the mid-1700s, born in, you guessed it, the Holy Roman Empire, today being a city in Austria. He was intensely prolific, writing over 600 musical works in his candle-burnt-too-quick 35 years of living. He was only 35, yet created an incredibly large portfolio of music and is widely regarded as one of the greatest composers ever. Phoenix is the name of the band, but it is also used to signify a flaming bird with the capability of rebirth or resurrection, and can be also used as a symbol for that idea itself. Connecting the two yields an interesting idea, abstracted out to the knowledge that something burned brightly burns shortly. Yet, despite the cruel nature of this fate, this consequence will not stop it from continuing to happen, over and over again in perpetuity. And so, we arrive at an understanding about the album. The past and present are melding in the music because the consequences explained within are not only universally understood, but timeless as well. The three fonts show three different time periods of graphic design, superimposed on a cartoonish, semi-mid-century depiction of something that happened years prior, in an album that references Franz Liszt, 1855, 1901, Mozart, Morse code, and more. In fact, the final playout of Armistice features a brief Morse code message that says Hello World, a common phrase used by programmers when learning a new system or as the beginning of a large project. This end is another beginning. So finally, the through line then is an attempt to compare the collective experience of humanity throughout history through the lens of a bad, prolonged, stuck relationship and its mutually assured destruction. A tale as old as time, it's a reference to our inability to recognize or accept the end. And simply, it's also just that romance, or the death of it, and the very real human flaws at the center. So let's go track by track now and fold out the bigger picture. First off is Listomania. Sorry, hold on, we can't skip over this again. Listomania? Surely this is like some bonkers made up Shakespearean impersonating artistic nonsense where they come up with a word that's meant to take the placeholder for some abstract idea that doesn't already have an English word, like sonder or taking a word from another language like higa. And believe it or not, you'd be dead wrong. Listomania, as much as I found it hard to believe, is an actual thing and is actually a lot more readily understood in a modern context than many people would realize. Listomania, in short, is a condition prescribed to a frenzied fan, someone wildly obsessed to the point of volatility. It was originally used to describe, and this is 100% true, fans of Hungarian composer and piano concertist Franz Liszt in the mid-1800s. It seems like the reaction was similar to some common fan reactions to modern-day pop sensations or celebrities, but instead to a supposedly attractive piano player in pre-Victorian Europe. Not to insult or cast doubt on the hotness of a long-dead composer, but it's just a rather peculiar thing to think about in this day and age. 
but that's probably the point. If we take the core idea of the album into consideration, this song is really important in setting the stage for this idea of connecting the people and relationships that exist now to those that existed in the past. The continuing cycle is an important thread in this album, and pointing out that people did the same weird stuff that we do today is key in illustrating this. This abstracting is duly present in the line in the chorus, From the Mess to the Masses, showing the connection from one couple's relationship, here described in terms of the protagonist as a mess, to the masses, being the many others. This song also shows the first fractures in the relationship. Take a listen to part of the second verse. When it's all over, we can barely discuss for one minute only. He's jumped to the present, past the end, despite the rest of the song being about this wild and frankly obsessive craze, typically used to describe fans, but here describing their connection or their connection at one point in the past. And in 1901, the very first series of lines refer to the fact that the relationship is doomed to fail. Actually, listen to the very beginning verse of this song, as it covers a ton of ground in explaining the state of the relationship in more concrete terms than Listomania. Past and present, they don't matter now, the future's sorted out. The protagonist is referring to the coming breakup as inevitable, so close that it's 20 seconds until last call, until their last hurrah, so there's really no point in fighting anymore. And this theme of giving up and blaming the significant other is core to this album, or at least the first half. The chorus of this song even builds on this theme with the protagonist saying he'll do anything for her, but that a miracle wouldn't save them now, and he's going to make damn sure that she knows it, that she knows it's her fault. Literally, the lyric is, it's not a miracle we needed, and no, I wouldn't let you think so. And just as Listomania opened up this idea of abstraction in terms of time period, the timeless idea of a stagnant relationship, so too does 1901 introduce abstraction in terms of the idea of universality. For most of the song, the protagonist is referring to the relationship in terms of you, I, and we. But in the beginning of the second verse, he sings, Girlfriend, oh your girlfriend is drifting away. He's moved to third person here and brought the listener into the fold to share in the suffering or bring their own ideas of their relationship into focus. And speaking of folds, there's a lyric the lead singer repeats an absolutely ridiculous number of times in this song. Not like around the world a number of times, but still a lot of times. Fold it. sings Fold It over and over again at the end of the choruses. And this introduces another key aspect of this album. Everything that I've been saying so far may or may not be true. It is all definitely one interpretation of the album. But in Fold It, we recognize just for a moment that everything so far may actually be something completely different. We're getting a sense of unreliability. And that's recognizable because fold it here could mean so many mutually inclusive things that could change the meaning of the album as a whole and grant a new perspective. But okay, yeah, what does fold it mean then? Well, in this context, even in our interpretation, it still represents a few loosely connecting ideas. One, it's a reference to the ending of something, i.e. the obvious ending of the relationship, folding it closed. Two, it's a really far out there and likely reaching on my part reference to touching the beginning and ending of a piece of paper together, signifying this recurring and timeless touch point we've been referencing. Or three, it's direct notice of her folding in on herself, caving in under the distance growing between them. And that brings us to fences. <laughs> A 
song about the walls being built around herself, wired and protected, a fortified castle in the wake of the breakdown of the relationship. We do, just for a moment here, get some notes of tenderness from the protagonist. True tenderness, as opposed to the facetious lines in 1901. There are attempts to revert the damage that has been done and get her to open up back to him, but it's still largely tinged by hurt and fatalism. For example, he's bringing up the idea of working to repair the damage himself, the feathers fallen from drapes that he is folding back up and returning to her as a gift. These feathers work as metaphor, representing shreds of fabric torn into the curtains of their furthered metaphoric relationship, revealing the outside to the inside, or rather the broiling, bubbling nature of the hidden relationship to the make-believe security of home life, or even vice versa. But really, he thinks the whole thing is just luck at this point anyway, just a roll of the dice, and again asserts that she has to be the one to make that gamble, having her roll the dice for him. The song fades out without resolution, and we're unsure on the results. And we fall into Love Like a Sunset Part 1, a song that we've just kind of refused to mention that much so far, and that's because it's really just weird. It's a five and a half minute instrumental right in the middle of the album, and not only that, but it is a full minute longer than any other song on the album. But despite how weird it is, and the placement of it being rather bizarre itself, we do get a little bit of a sense of the storyline of the relationship here. And one thing is abundantly clear. This relationship has been over for a long time. Or at least it should have been. At the beginning, there is a light electronic beeping, round and almost kind sounding like that of message tones. The relationship is starting here, and we hear that pick up in an almost engine-sounding beginning. The music then starts to build and build, with a jumping guitar riff that starts in and grows with everything else, before suddenly peaking in the middle of the song. This moment of power, a wall of sound that suddenly stops. A violent, distorted guitar falls out of this, dissonant and random. This is the moment, the cheating or whatever else, that should have been the end. But then, all of a sudden, we continue again. The beat picks up, but this time darker, mirroring the first half with this subtle change, like the idea of the repeating timeless connection between different relationships. The jumping guitar returns, a recall of the first section, possibly that hidden darkness that had always been lingering before the music again begins to grow on this darker side. The tension is building between the two. The anger or emotion is rearing before it finally breaks, and they reach the final breaking point, and the song peters out with a shaky, scratching synth. And then, Love Like a Sunset Part 2. Right, joyful even, so sure of itself. But the lyrics, when did we start the end? This is not a happy moment. This is the moment we talked about earlier. This is the final decision to end the relationship where your brain recalls all of the best memories as anchors, as calls to really weigh the decision fully because there were a lot of good things, or at least some, and would it be worth it to really throw away all of that time and those good memories after all? This is not a happy song. It's a confused song, and its runtime is fractional to the length of part one, only one minute and 57 seconds, but the moment represented here is much shorter. If part one is the entire rest of the relationship, then part two is an eternity to spend on only one moment, trapped in the uncertainty of the best decision. He's stuck just as much as she is. And because of that, he fully turns on her in Lasso. Rather than supplanting some of the negative feelings with positive goading toward remedy, he's nearly fully committing to scorched earth as a method of reconciliation, almost gaslighting in a way. 
And on that point, it seems like this has turned this way because the end of Sunset Part 1 was actually the true call from her to break up. In verse 1 of Lasso, he asks, Was it suddenly? Don't you know? Don't do it, what you do to me. It seems like some decision was made here that he wasn't prior privy to, likely her ask for a breakup. We've already talked about Lasso a little bit as this, you're wasting your life ruining this, you're caught in a spiral, you have nowhere to go, so just come back to me kind of mentality throughout. But it's important to point out this gaslighting, especially in lines like, no, you don't realize what you say yes to, but you say yes to. Essentially being like, you said you were committed, you're just going to back out? Because finally, in Rome, we get a sense of what actually happened, or again, at least his interpretation of it, which is heavily skewed by this growing anger. We see this all extremely clearly in the first verse. Take a listen. Who's the boy you like the most? Is it teasing you with underage? Could he be waving from a tropical sunset? Static silhouette somehow Single in his bed someday The first line is such a slanderous bit of sarcasm. Who's the boy you like the most? Is he teasing you with underage? Could he be waving from a tropical sunset? If we take the whole situation as being something akin to her cheating on him while on their Italy trip, as seen by lines like, single in his bed somewhere, or the fact that she won't meet his gaze while he's driving in the chorus, this line is his insult-based defense when the info comes out. It's fairly clear that the guy isn't actually underage from the general sense of the rest of the album, as that's kind of a much more serious thing that probably would have resulted in a bigger consequence. Instead, he's likely just a bit younger than they are, and it's important to note that it's possible here that she didn't actually do anything, as we've already established him as an unreliable narrator. She could have just been ogling someone, as people are sometimes wont to do, and he launched into a jealousy-fueled tirade that shook the foundations of the relationship, exposed the already present cracks, and laid the path to the end. And following that, we break into Countdown. Countdown! decision has been set, the bed is made, and to quote an old idiom, it's time to lie in it. Like we said before, whereas in the first half of the album, he had been generally equally positive and negative toward the situation, the back half sees him double down on lashing out. If Lasso was the last-ditch effort to salvage the relationship, and Rome was the turn to blame it on her, then Countdown is the change. Countdown is different. And if you've been paying more attention than me while writing this, there's a peculiar pattern to the last five songs on the album. Lasso was turning down the possibility that she could leave, something tying her down, a denial. Rome was fueled by anger. And well, that must mean that this is the bargaining song. Yeah, it's the five stages of grief. He's grieving. He's not just upset for the sake of being mad. He's actually truthfully hurt and pained. This is a texture to him that we haven't truly seen yet, and it comes not a second too late in Countdown as well. There are still the signature insult-adjacent lines being tossed her way, but there's almost a fear in his voice during the verses. Take a listen. Don't say no, notices that her breakfast tears have gone. She's no longer upset. She's accepted it and has begun to move on, but he's still desperately clinging, even calling back to when they were 21, a time that may have been better. And the real death knell in this comes from the change in the line true and everlasting that we talked about earlier, changing from pleading that she wanted to be together forever to saying that it's cruel and then to crying about how it didn't last that long. These are the last lines of the song, and they slowly slide into...
the deceptively depressive song. But this one is actually pretty clear when we look at it from this point of view. There's a happiness to the song juxtaposed pretty intensely to the lyrics, a reference to the large difference in emotional states between him and her in this moment. He is continuously referencing the lack of a miracle here, a callback to the miracle she wanted earlier, but he wouldn't let her have. He calls to her emotional center, begging that he is longing you, I am longing us too. And most notably, the choruses have him sing out that she just don't care, farewell till you know me well, essentially attempting to say that she's going to regret it in the end and miss and come back to him before softly and almost pitily singing girlfriend as almost a summon or spell for this to happen that way. But it's pretty clear at this point that she's had enough. She's already stated her case, and the last song, Armistice, is their acceptance. Take a listen to the chorus of the song. Our daily compromise, it is written in your signed armistice. This could be taken a few different ways, especially considering the aspect of a daily compromise, but it's important to note that the love between the two is severely tested here, hanging on by the slimmest thread, war merely stopped rather than finished, armistice after all being just a pause in battle. But it holds a strong connection to the signing of a divorce certificate as well, that final rending of a relationship once and for all. And at this point, it really seems as though even he has accepted it. He even claims he's not going to talk shit about her because he's not that kind of kiss and tell. But there are some symbolic references to talk about as well before we get to the end of the song and consequentially the end of the album. In the lyrics, Dahlias and Cherry Trees. He uses these in the first verses, and they do a ton of legwork to fully surround the album in a thematic connection. Dahlias are beautiful flowers, symbols of such things as inner strength, change, and dignity, but just as the relationship and both characters are textured and dichotomous, so too are these flowers, also representing betrayal or dishonesty. And despite him saying no, and I don't recall them anyway, to dahlias and cherry trees just a moment later, it's still important to point out their significance. And that significance is something we can use to wrap the album up. With a quick and bizarre change to an old-time harpsichord-like instrument, we again travel back in time and create a through line between the past and present before singing out the lines for lovers in a rush keeping promises. The band here is abstracting this out again. One last time, the metaphor of a cherry tree being symbolic of impermanence, birth and death, and therefore being symbolic of the generational repeating experience. Lovers in a rush keeping promises are all lovers, all in a rush to experience life and love and not risk it being a mistake. But all people are complicated and make mistakes themselves, and so the risk of these types of situations is always more common than uncommon. And so that's really the lesson that Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix leaves for us, if there really is a lesson at all. After all, not all art needs to have a moral, and as a result, not all art does. Some art just exists for the sake of existing, or revealing, or commenting on some aspect of our lives, or our minds, or our creativity. And this album is no exception. A relationship album through and through, but one that directly shows us our messy selves, and ensures us that we're not the only ones who don't have it figured out. No one really has it figured out, and truthfully, that's just part of being human. Stick around after the break for a quick conversation about the album with Phoenix fan and special guest Tyler. 
Hey everyone, welcome back to Throughline. We just got done talking about Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix, and now we're going to have a quick conversation about the album with fan and special guest Tyler. How's it going? Hey, Christian, going well. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Again, I couldn't think of anyone off the top of my head that, oh, this person's like a huge Phoenix fan. So I reached out on Facebook again, and I was like, does anyone that I'm friends with, is anyone a fan of this band? And you reached out, and I'm super grateful, but how did you get into Phoenix? Phoenix in the first place. Yeah, well, for sure, Christian. And let me just say, I don't check Facebook that often. So I think it was a sign. <laughs> right. I logged in that one night and saw your post. And yeah, of course, like Phoenix is wonderful. And I'm so happy to talk about him. I wish I could say I heard about Phoenix when they first released an album, but that was back in 2000. And I think I was in kindergarten. Right. Realistically, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Realistically, the first time I heard about Phoenix was the release of Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix, which was probably, as you mentioned, the advent of their widespread commercial success in the USA. Right. I think I was in middle school at the time. And right around then is when, you know, you start branching out into individual personas, figuring out who you are as a person. Well, I'm from a small town and we didn't have access to malls or museums for us to hang out in. So all throughout middle school and all throughout high school, mm -hmm. we would hang out in the local indie record store. We gobbled the music, pouring over vinyl, CDs, speakers, tchotchkes. And I distinctly remember my brother, we're twins, Christian, as you know. Right. Yeah. Telling me about this amazing new album by a band called Phoenix. So lo and behold, it was of course Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix. I don't think I picked up the Mozart reference at the time, but of course right. we're talking about me being a young teenager. <laughs> yeah, so we bought the album uh, from the record store with the little money that we had. We put it on our iPod and the rest was history. Right. Yeah, it's so weird because 2009, 2009, I was still, I think, trying to figure out what music I was listening to because my dad is a huge music guy. And so a lot of the stuff that I was listening to was based off of what he was listening to. And I didn't even really start picking my own music until, ah, uh, God, I would say 2013 or 2014 when I started branching out and finding stuff for myself. So this album came out way before I would have found it out. I had heard it on the radio and stuff like that. I had heard a little bit here and there. Yeah, I mean, same. I grew up with my parents' music, you know, as all kids do, right? My mom listens to Metallica and Iron Maiden, and my father brought me up on Bob Dylan and Marvin Gaye and the Rolling Stones. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until, you know, really middle school and early high school and then all throughout high school was when I discovered what I listened to then, which was alternative and indie rock and synth pop and right. all these awesome people coming out of the woodworks. And it's so weird. I think when I first heard about it or first started listening to it, I'm like, it's just pop music. And that was still in the time when I was pop music is bad. Pop music is this or whatever. Right. And then the title was, oh, OK, whatever. <laughs> Well, and also what's funny about you calling it pop music, I heard what you said earlier in the podcast about, you know, you did a quick straw poll to, to your office to see who knew Phoenix. I'm under the impression that the entire universe knows this band and this album. Right. But I did the same. I was asking my coworkers, and so many of them had never heard of this album or this band. And I was kind of shocked because this was really definitive for my teenage years. I mean, this album, it's honestly just so good. Like it starts off with Listomania, which is by and large anthemic. And then 1901 is just a powerhouse. Absolutely. There's so many good songs on this album, but what struck me when I was going through and researching a number of things that people were saying, not a lot of people are like talking about the meaning. There's a ton of people talking about, oh, this is the epitome of a indie pop record. But most of them are like, yeah, it just sounds good. It's fun <laughs> and stuff like that. And no one's not even the band is really talking about what the lyrics even mean or anything like that. So I'm curious when you were first listening to the album, were you thinking about anything that he was saying or was it? Yeah, this is just a fun album. I definitely think it's a little bit of both. Right. So when you're first coming onto the stage and I know they had released multiple albums prior to Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix. Yeah. But this really was the biggest hit of their career, at least in the States at that moment. And so when you're first coming onto the stage in that manner, you need those songs to be catchy in one sort of way or another. And so right. I think a lot of people did get into this album because it was so loud and easy to chant and it had fun words like listomania or right. alliterative lines like from the mess to the masses, which is just awesome, by the way. And 1901 is super repetitive, which is of course, easy to sing, easy to remember. And so I think maybe in middle school and high school, I don't know how focused I was on the lyrics, mm -hmm. but actually in preparation for this podcast, I went back and listened. And man, some of the stuff that 
Thomas Mars and the rest of the band write about is just so good. So Lasso, for example, they pose the question, where would I go if I were tied up to a lasso? Right. And so I, I'm thinking to myself, am I tied to a lasso? Yeah. Or in this analogy, is the lasso a tether holding me back? Or is it a tool that I can use to capture what I need? So, you know, honestly, this is some really deep stuff that they're posing. He's really hitting hard onto a very personal aspect of people. And I talked about this a little bit, that relationships are something that is so universal to us and yet so complicated. And there are so many lyrics in the songs that are very clearly romantic and they're very clear in what they're trying to say. But then there's also a ton of stuff in there that's so cryptic as well. I agree. He's writing this really interesting line between like, yeah, we're going to say exactly what we mean. And then also we're going to say the most complicated poetry lyric you could ever possibly imagine. Right. And, and I wonder if that has to do with English not being their first language. And so maybe maybe cryptic words or cryptic poetry or maybe veiled messages might come a little easier because they've had to think for their entire lives, at least for their entire English speaking lives, on how to convey messages appropriately and with meaning. So it might be easier for them to do the exact opposite as well, which is hide it in this veil of mystery or these these lyrics that, gosh, what do they mean? What right. are they trying to say? Well, yeah, one of the interesting things was on that point, I found an interview with Pitchfork. It was with the lead singer, Thomas Mars, and the interviewer from Pitchfork, Ryan Domble. And he asks the question, I also noticed your lyrics have gotten more cryptic over the course of the past 10 years. Is that you becoming older or wanting to hide more? And then Thomas Ooh. Mars says, probably hiding more or just enjoying music as a magic trick. One of my favorite French singers was the expert at creating his own universe. No one knows what he's talking about. Even he doesn't know because it's so poetic. We're fascinated with the idea of every word fitting perfectly with every chord so it creates a new standard of beauty. I love that. It just sounds like they were so hyper-focused on the art right? as well as the meaning of the words. Like it all works together to make this beautiful album. Yeah, it's interesting because it almost seems like he's saying we started out with an idea, we had this plan, and then and we wanted the words to fit better, so we abstracted them out into different lyrics to fit better with the music. I, I totally see that thought process, and you can actually see that in real time if you've listened to the Bankrupt Diaries. Do you know what the Bankrupt Diaries are? So I've listened a little bit to Bankrupt and Tiamo, the following records, but I, ha I don't know anything about the production of those albums, no. Oh my gosh, you are going to love this. So Phoenix's follow-up album, which I think was 2013, and I don't think it had as much commercial success, I would say, but I certainly loved the album. I remember specifically driving to high school and blaring this one because this right. is when <laughs> the time we were driving. So the album was called Bankrupt and it really cemented, in my opinion, Phoenix as a mainstay in the alternative music scene of the early 2010s. But one of my favorite parts of the album was this B-side on the deluxe version. And so going back to the record store that I used to frequent as a middle schooler, this is where they would sell us on these cool things that people didn't know about. So they had right. the Bankrupt album and then they had Bankrupt Deluxe, which was called Bankrupt Diaries. So Bankrupt had 10 songs on it, but the deluxe version had a B-side that included north of like 70 additional tracks. Whoa. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was so much fun to listen to. Yeah. I remember one song was only a second long. I, I don't understand how they got that one through. But most of the songs ranged from 30 seconds to probably 90 seconds. Oh, okay. So they're all outtakes from the making of Bankrupt. Various riffs that didn't make it into the album or lyrics that are unique, but yet mirror the Bankrupt album at the same time. Mm -hmm. One song was called Just Trying to Be Cool, which was a riff from Side A's Trying to Be Cool. And it definitely felt like an inside sneak peek into their brains and the inner workings of the album. Sure. And it's interesting that they released that for Bankrupt because when I was going through interviews and reading about it, I think it was Thomas Mars or one of the other members of the band who was saying that they had like 15 hours of music when recording Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix, but a lot of it was just openers or outtakes or other things that just kind of got cut. He was describing, oh, we're not the type of band to write 30 songs and then cut out those songs. We're just going to lay off 
off of these ideas and have a bunch of ideas and see what sticks. Well, I love that. I wonder if they weren't quite ready to release something like the Bankrupt Diaries when Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix was released. But then upon you know that launching them into stardom, at least amongst the, the alternative indie scene, that stratosphere of fame, I wonder yeah. if that allowed them to be more creative with the next album. That popularity does grant you some abilities. So I have like four echelons of popularity that I typically think of bands. Okay. You are not popular. Okay. Indie popular, radio popular, or mainstream. Well, this definitely launched them from, I would say, low-grade indie popular to high-grade indie popular, at least the Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix album. They were radio popular for a bit. Their, Their songs were on the radio, and they still are sometimes played on, like, the indie XM station or whatever right. it's called. But the, the weird thing about that aspect of their popularity, though, is Listomania really seems to be talking about fame itself. And so this is one of those bands that's almost talking about fame before they're famous, and then it becomes hyper-relevant when they circle back to after they're famous. It's kind of like the side wink, almost, because they're writing about fan mania from, yeah. what is it, a Hungarian composer? Yeah, I think it was Hungarian, Franz Liszt. Yeah, Franz Liszt. And so they're writing about this mania, which, you know, we have another term for it in the 60s, the Beatlemania, of course. Right. Beatles came to America. So Listomania is just the same theory as Beatlemania. And yet that song also helps propel them into that upper echelon of fame. There's something to be said about bands that know when something is going to be popular and then make it popular. There is a band called Blues Traveler that put out a song called Hook. The premise of the song Hook was if you have a good hook, to a song like if you sing a specific refrain in a way that is popular sounding then the song is likely to become popular so the whole song is a satire of the music industry and the pop industry but then they have a hook in the song that got popular enough to get that song on the radio right and i definitely think there was a strategic decision to release 1901 as that first single from the album you know giving people that teaser of the album allowed for people to clamor for listomania and Lasso and Armistice, all these songs from the album that were just as good, if not better. But yeah, I think choosing 1901 to be the first release was a good decision on their part. The thing that then other people kind of harp against that is, is that, oh yeah, because it it sounds so clean, it sounds so nice, then it's them just kind of selling out. Like there's a quote in a review of the album from The Guardian by Alexis Petridis. He says, everything sounds precise and almost willfully sterile, as if the whole thing were played by someone wearing rubber gloves. Oh, wow. Huh. That is so interesting. The unfair thing about this statement is almost implying that something being clean means that it's not good, that it's devoid of texture. There is nothing in the world that is 100% smooth to the point where it doesn't have texture. Everything has texture. If you zoom in far enough, you can always see some aspect of roughness. There is always something buried underneath the surface and attributing cleanliness, attributing precision to a lack of meaning or a lack of substance is really unfair to the album. And I feel like I talk about this a lot in this back half, but a lot of people seem to be under the impression that all music needs to be reviewed and rated on the same scale. But not all music is trying to accomplish the same thing. Not all music is looking to have some grand moral or some big story to tell. Some music exists just for the fun of it, and it just so happens that this music also has a deeper meaning. I think that's the crux of it, though, is that this music, this album, is, at the end of the day, fun. It is fun to listen to. It's fun to dance to. It appeals to everybody. It wasn't pop in the sense of the word pop that we knew it back in 2009, but it really did appeal to a broader base. And it was, you know, as you mentioned, it had a deeper meaning behind a lot of the songs and the lyrics. Once you kind of peel back the layers of that onion of the funness of the repetitiveness. Right. I'm curious what you think like some of the meaning is and if you kind of read it around the same that I read it. For sure. I definitely view it as relational 
emotional in the way that you did. Right. And I kind of viewed the first half when Listomania comes on, it's all about a mania and it's about love. So yeah, Listomania has this line from the mess to the masses. Yeah. And that in and of itself is a relatable idea. Growth, rebirth, positive change. And 1901 is also just as fun to sing. So to me, this talks about the relationship in a fun and casual way. And it right. says to the listeners that, hey, we're having fun. Life is great. It's awesome. Moving on to Love Like the Sunset, which doesn't have any lyrics. The back half of the album is when we get to Rome, which of course is a very far cry from Listomania. It's, you know, talking about cheating or some scandal or being with another man. Mm -hmm. And then Armistice, which, you know, an armistice is a pause in the fighting. I, I read your analysis and you likened that armistice to almost the signing of divorce papers, yeah. which I thought was really insightful. An armistice isn't an end. It's not a treaty. It's just a pause. Right. You know, all relationships either continue forever or they end. But if you don't want to view it like an end, you can also view that as a pause. Yeah. You and I, for example, we were friends in college, haven't spoken in the last couple of years. <laughs> and now we're doing this podcast together. Right. Yeah. It wasn't an end. It was a pause. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I read it as kind of like, oh, yeah, it's signing divorce papers. But the idea of an armistice also extends to, oh, we're just taking a break. We're taking a break in the relationship because the relationship isn't going the way that we want it to go. I agree. I do disagree with your analysis on the album artwork, actually. Okay. Oh, I'm curious to see what you have to say. So you said that the three items were bombs being dropped. The blue represented masculinity or the man, and then the red represented the femininity or the female, correct? Yeah, if we're going with like traditional gender kind of imagery. Sure, which is 2022, you know, spectrum. Right. But I actually, I remember this album artwork clear as day, not only because it's one of the first physical albums I think I ever bought. I think prior to that, I was illegally downloading music and, and <laughs> helped usher in the, you know, me buying, you know, CDs and records. Right. So not only do I know the artwork that way, but it's just so recognizable. I actually thought they weren't bombs, but descending zeppelins. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so it does have that vibe, doesn't it? Right. And so for the listener that doesn't know, a zeppelin is a blimp. And this wouldn't be the first time that musicians referenced blimps. So Keith Moon of The Who, upon hearing Jimmy Page's then unnamed band's first song, said it would go over like a lead zeppelin, a flying blimp made out of heavy lead. Uh, evoking yeah evoking the cultural zeitgeist of the hindenburg disaster i don't yeah. think anyone would want to be flying in a led zeppelin so jimmy page liked that reference and in order to prove moon wrong he named his band led zeppelin as a tongue-in-cheek joke and of course we all know led zeppelin today right so to me the cover album artwork looks like zeppelins descending on an ambiguous american state like we don't know which state that is okay and so since phoenix is french my thought was that that was that they may be trying to insinuate a french invasion of this synth rock, electronic, alternative music masterpieces coming to the States. Their first album was in 2000, so they weren't far behind other bands like Daft Punk and MA3, both of which are from France. Right. The USA has always been an importer and an exporter of culture. We all know the British invasion of the Beatles, which I've mentioned before, yeah. the Rolling Stones and the Who, and then of course the current K-pop Korean invasion, right. you know, going from Psy to BTS, Parasite, Squid Games. So I was thinking that Phoenix was trying to use this album as a bellwether of maybe a hopeful French invasion. Okay. Uh, yeah, I can totally see that, especially considering we talked about the references to the fame kind of thing in Listomania, and then also them putting their band name into the name of an Austrian composer. And not just any Austrian composer, but someone who transcended geographical boundaries. Right. Interesting. Yeah. And there is something to be said about the fact that Phoenix from the beginning was singing in English. I thought for a right. moment that they sang in French from the beginning, but they didn't. They've been singing in English since 2000, since their first right. album. And they talked about how that was a decision they wanted to make. They wanted to be more universal. They don't want they didn't want to just be a French band. And so I can totally see that interpretation of them being like, I think this is the right time for us to go mainstream. <laughs> right. They wrote this album. They knew it was going to be amazing as it was. Right. And they said, if anything, you know, either launches or in encapsulates this French invasion. Just keep in mind, Daft Punk was on the scenes in the early 90s. And, and of course, they're not the only French people to make headway right. in American markets. You had Francois Hardy dating back to the 1960s. And so if Phoenix wanted to be the face of this French cultural movement, this, this music movement 
from France to the US or to the globe, naming your album Wolfgang Amadeus, insert band name here, I think is a pretty you know clever way to do it. I like that idea a lot because that's kind of one of the things about this album that I think is so interesting, especially with the lyrics being as poetic as they are, is that there are so many different interpretations and that's what makes good and fun art is the idea that I thought it this way and you thought it this way. So we can talk about it and figure it out. That's exactly right. And, you know, there doesn't have to be a perfect answer. It, right. Honestly, because of the limited interviews they give and the limited information they give about their thought process when making these albums, we might not know who was right or if either of us were or if it doesn't really matter. And at the end of the day, the sole point is that we enjoy the music. Right. And I think to that point, there's actually so in that same interview with Ryan Dombal from Pitchfork, Thomas Mars says, we always look for some things that glue together, but shouldn't like something sad in a major chord. At the same time, we never really think in terms of happy and sad because to me, it's really the same. It just depends on your mood. I almost didn't want to put the lyrics in the booklet because when people misinterpret a line, it's even better sometimes. Wow, that is good. Yeah, he's basically saying that art or beauty is in the eye of the beholder and that sure. this album is made to be consumed. And each time it is consumed, i.e. each time we listen, it's interpreted in a different way. And I think that's one of the really, really the most beautiful things about music in general and our enjoyment of music and allowing people that space, allowing people their genres, allowing people their artists that they love and they have that frenzy for, that frenzy that they can build identity from in some way is really cool. I agree. I wanted to go back to album artwork again for Bankrupt real quick and in reference specifically to the Bankrupt Diaries, which is that supplemental B-side. Mm -hmm. Even the album artwork right there, I think is that like side wink to the listener to say, hey, there's something more you should be aware aware of it. And so if you haven't seen the album, it's a great background with a full peach, just a yeah. beautiful, perfect peach, as well as an additional slice of a peach. Yeah. And what that album artwork is telling me is that it's a full album, a full peach, plus a little extra, the mm. extra slice. It's bankrupt plus the diaries. Right. How cool is that? Yeah, that's such a fun idea. I just, I love when bands are, this is a thing that we put together, we put our heart in, we're going to release it all at once. And I love albums for that. I love when artists release albums because there is so much care that goes into them. Oh, for the longest time, I would only listen to an album front to back. This right. was before Spotify. This is back when I used to buy every single album that I listened to. And mm -hmm. we would listen, you know, first song to last song. It didn't matter if you didn't like a song. That was the way the artist intended it. And I actually, I don't know which artist is doing this, but I think there's one major artist suing Spotify to play to play their album in order. So to disable the shuffle mode, because that was the artist's curation of the music. I can see that argument for sure. I think that maybe an artist should have the opportunity to do that but on the other hand there is meaning to randomness and randomness is sometimes what the artist might want or sometimes what the listener might want they might like the idea of not knowing what's going to come next but there is something to be said about i put this song after this song after this song to mean this specific thing and i don't want that to get lost so there's a right. there's a really fine balance between those two things i think i think there is i think you're right so i think i'm gonna cap off with Ryan Domball again so from his actual review of the album where he he's kind of summing it up and he starts by quoting Oscar Wilde a quote by Oscar Wilde that says it's the perfect form of pleasure it's exquisite and leaves one unsatisfied what more can one ask so Oscar Wilde is talking about something else there obviously not the Phoenix album then he goes on to say Phoenix seemed to understand this line of thinking they're pleasure pushers filling tunes with riffs phrases and beats a five-year-old could love but on Wolfgang those same songs are unfulfilled and this band wouldn't have it any other way there's beauty in a sunset and phoenix are ringing it out i couldn't say it better could i do a little cap of my own sure yeah absolutely so right after bankrupt was released i had two fun opportunities that both featured phoenix i actually got a job in the exact same record store that i was talking about earlier where i bought the album back in middle school and so my first job responsibility at the record store in florida was to set up a tyler's recommendations box, which mm. was by far the biggest perk of the job. So into the box went Morrissey's World Peace is None of Your Business, Jack White's Blunderbuss, Courtney Barnett's Sometimes I Sit and Think and Sometimes I Just Sit, and of course, Phoenix's Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix. That is a great mix. <laughs> 
It was, it was a really fun job. Back in 2013, I went to Atlanta's Music Midtown. We camped out all day before doors opened and ran to get to the front of the stage. Phoenix, of course, was playing and they played hit after hit from Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix and had this absolute knack of making the crowd go wild. The lead, Thomas Mars, he climbed into the crowd and sang while we were literally supporting him. So we were holding up his feet in the crowd Whoa. as he was singing Lasso. It was unreal. <laughs> All right. Well, I wanted to thank you so much for joining me. You were a wonderful guest with so many really great insights. Of course, dude. I had so much fun. I was nervous, but excited. Hopefully I was a good guest. You were a fantastic guest. You didn't sound nervous at all. <laughs> well, thank you. And I'm so looking forward to the episode coming out. I'm going to share it with everybody. Thank you so much. And with that, that will be the end of episode four of Throughline with our album, Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix. And remember, everyone, if you want to just have fun sometimes, you're allowed to just have fun. Thank you so much. Yeah.